I'd like to begin this morning by um, asking you about a mystery. I don't think there are probably very many people in all this building right now who don't like mysteries. Mysteries are one of the genres of literature that we love a lot. A mystery, you'll see by the definition here, a mystery has a variety of, it's a novel, a short story, a play, or a film whose plot involves a crime or some other event that remains puzzlingly unsettled, unsettled until the very end. A mystery is a story about a caper, maybe a crime, a problem. And in the process of, of, that, of solving that problem, there's a closed circle of suspects. And every one of these suspects has, in some way, some motive for committing the crime. And enters the scene, the hero of any mystery, and that's the one who solves the crime. That's the detective. And by piecing together all the different clues that the writer tells you, they solve the mystery. And at the end, when they solve it, you go, oh, of course. But you didn't happen to usually see it. Because usually, um, when it's solved, it, it's, it's rather simple and pretty straightforward. And generally speaking, it, it, um, it involves some kind of issue that's important for us to consider. And so today, we're going to look at a mystery. Our text of scripture today is Ephesians chapter 3 verses 1 to 13. And in this passage of scripture, three times the apostle Paul is going to use the word mystery. Mystery, mystery, mystery. First of all, he is going to um, introduce himself as the detective who quote-unquote solves the mystery. And then he's going to tell us what the mystery is. And then he's going to give us some, cl some clues about what, why the mystery, people didn't figure out the mystery. And then he's going to end by what are the implications of this mystery. And so that's what we're going to do today. And so if you would look in your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. That's our text of Scripture. And by the way, again, typical the Apostle Paul, this whole passage is only two sentences. Verses 1 to 7 is one sentence, and verses 8 to 13 is a second sentence. So Paul, he could write a whole book in one sentence, I'm pretty sure of it, because that's what he does here again. Now, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to look at the detective who solves the mystery. And uh, um, our culture, by the way, and if you can show that slide of uh, all of these people, our, 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 our culture is full of detective stories. Here's just a, a small sampling of eight of them. You know Ms. Mar Ms. Marple in the Agatha Christie uh, murder mysteries? Oh, Columbo can't miss him at all. You have um, uh, Inspector Cousseau and Angela Lansbury. That's what I think of a murder she wrote. And, of course, Sherlock Holmes and the Father Brown series. And Nancy Drew. And, of course, Perrault. And in, also in the Agatha Christie um, um, novels. These are some of the detectives that we're very, very familiar with in our society. But now the Apostle Paul is going to tell us that in God's great mystery, he is the detective. Here's what he writes. He says, For this reason, well, I guess you got to stop there. <laughs> For what reason? Remember when this whole thing, this whole letter that he writes to the people of Ephesians is connected. All of it is, 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 is 
a part of a big, big package that he's trying to explain to people what it means for people to be in Christ and for Christ to be in us and for us to be one body. And he's just talked about how the Jews and the Gentiles are one body in Christ and all these barriers that, that used to divide them are gone now because of Christ. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ. He is a prisoner. He's a prisoner in two senses. One, the Apostle Paul says he is a bond slave of Christ. I remember uh, some year, many years ago, I was a pastor in Houston, Texas. And there was this man who came to, 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 to sing. He sang some special songs in our church that Sunday morning. I hadn't seen him before. I remember, this is back in the 1980s, so it's a long, pretty long time ago. He had real long hair, way down to here, and this guy had an earring. Now, you see men with earrings today, and it's not that uncommon, but in the 1980s, you didn't see any man with an earring. This guy had an earring. And, of course, we're listening to him sing, but no one's listening to him. Everyone's looking at his ear, going, <laughs> what's the deal with an earring? And, of course, he, was, he knew what was going on. So he stopped and said, I know what you're doing. You're all looking at my earring. Let me tell you what, why I do this. He said, in the Old Testament, it speaks about a person who is a slave. But in the Old Testament, as well as New Testament times, you could buy your way out of slavery. And many, many people did that. But very occasionally, there would be somebody who bought his way out of slavery, but who so liked his master, he wanted to be the slave. And so that person became a bond slave, a slave by choice. And the Old Testament says, if someone is a bond slave, you are to take an awl and put a hole through their ear. And that is the symbol that they are a slave by choice. And so this musician said, I am a bond slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why you see that hole in my ear. Real woo. Paul says, that's me. In other places, Paul says, I am a bond slave of Jesus Christ. I have chosen to give my life to Jesus. But there's a second sense in which he's a prisoner because he's actually in prison. We don't know when he was in prison, but Paul liked prisons. He was in prison all the time. He was in prison in Ephesus. He was in prison in Caesarea. He was in prison in Rome a couple of times. So at one of those places, Paul is writing this letter, and he's literally a prisoner. Why is he a prisoner? Now, Paul didn't have to be a prisoner. Paul could have been as free as could be. In fact, Paul could have been more free than almost anyone he writes to because Paul was a Roman citizen. He had, there's no reason why he had to be in prisoner. He is a prisoner because he had the audacity to say that Jews and Gentiles are part of God's family on an equal basis. Now that you can't say, especially among Jewish people. And that's what got him thrown into prison, and eventually he made his way to Rome where he was killed. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles... And he goes on and says, Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, there's our word, the mystery 
made known to me by revelation, I, as I have already written briefly. And then he goes on. In reading this then, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. Did you see the word mystery? Two times so far we've seen it. The Apostle Paul says, I have been given the responsibility, the administration, the stewardship. I have been called by God to steward a mystery. I am the inspector Cousseau. I am, uh, I, I am the one that has been called by God to be the Columbo. I've been go- called by God to be Nancy Drew. I've been called to understand and to proclaim the mystery. Paul has some characteristics. First of all, he gets it. He understands the mystery, and part of the reason why Paul understands this mystery is because Paul had extensive knowledge of the Old Testament. He knew the Bible very well. Secondly, Paul understood this mystery because, and he was selected by God to be the one who was the detective because he, he's willing to die for it. He's willing to pay the price to communicate this mystery to others. Besides, he loves his job. He's doing this because he has a deep-seated love for the Gentiles to bring them into the family of God. Moreover, he says, "Um, I didn't figure out this mystery on my own. I was tipped off. I was tipped off by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was the one who communicated to me, enabled me to put the pieces together so that I could be the detective that told you what this ministry was all about. And I'm not the only one who gets it. There are apostles and prophets for centuries. They got it too. I'm not alone. So that's what he says. No. We're supposed to be detectives too. How are you doing as a detective of the mystery? You don't know what the mystery is yet. That's coming in the next verse. But are you a very good detective? Do you know enough of the Bible that you could put the pieces together? Are you willing to pay a price? You see, even in all the murder mysteries that we write in our culture today, the detective often gets in a lot of trouble. Columbo, they think he's a doofus. But he said, well, well, I have another question. (laughs) And of course, he always gets it right. Are you willing to pay the price for it? Uh, do Do you love your job? One of the things about murder mysteries that we can see with all the detectives is they they really like their job. They like solving these capers because there's, there's a criminal on the loose. There's something very, very important in their work. Do we realize if we are people who are God's detectives, uh, do we realize that on our own we would never figure it out? God has got to help us. God's Spirit is behind it. So the first thing the Apostle Paul does is he says, I am the detective. And I hope you're thinking, well, okay, okay, great. What is the mystery? What is this mystery that the Apostle Paul is so pumped up about? Well, let's see. What is the content of the mystery. Here it goes. This mystery is that through the gospel the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. 
There's the mystery. Now, what's the key word in the mystery? Oop, better read it again. Can we go back a slide? You didn't catch it. The mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. <laughs> Members together of one body and shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Did you get the key word? Okay. How can you possibly miss it? Together, together, together. The mystery is not that God has brought Gentiles into his family. That is not the mystery. Many places in the Old Testament, God said that his blessings are going to be for all the nations. And that God has a love for the Gentiles. And God was going to bring the Gentiles into his family. That is not a mystery. This is a mystery. They're going to be members they're going to be heirs together. They're going to be members together, sharers together. It's the equality of Jew and Gentile that they, they didn't get this. Okay, we'll adopt this kid into our family, but second class, of course. They're not going to get an equal share, are they? Yes. Heirs together. Yeah, the body is God's chosen people, Jewish people by heritage, by culture, by tradition, by the Old Testament. And, and you graft these Gentiles in, you know, they kind of be you know, sub-members, you know, kind of you know, little, little shoots coming out, but we're the real big tree. No, members together. Now, wait a minute, the promises were given to the Jewish people. Together with the Gentiles. Ooh, now that's, that's a, a, a game changer. That, 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 that's not, that doesn't quite work. Remember a couple of weeks ago we were in chapter 2 and we, I identified 12 different barriers between Jews and Gentiles. The barriers were stunning. The first thing God had to do if he was going to bring the gospel to the whole world is he had to bring down the barriers because there was a whole host of things that kept Jews and Gentiles separate. They could not eat together. They couldn't eat the same food. They couldn't wear the same clothes. They didn't have the same traditions. didn't have the same holidays. They had nothing in common. And God broke those barriers, broke them, broke them, and broke them, all 12 of them, until now they could actually be in the same room together. That's progress, but that's not the mystery. The mystery is now they're equals. They're together. Diana mentioned that we're going to have a church history class starting this week. And some weeks down the road, we'll get to the, the history of the church in America. You probably don't know this, but in the 1600s, Christianity was in a bad, 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 bad way in the United States of America. It wasn't the United States yet. It was a bunch of colonies. But people had nothing to do with Jesus Christ, even though they had the incredible background of the pilgrims. And uh, because church attendance was so on the slide, the religious authorities decided that they were going to have two tiers of Christians. It's called the halfway covenant. 
What they decided to do is they would have people who were partial members in the church, which meant they could still have their children baptized and they could join in the church potlucks, but they could not receive communion. It's called the halfway covenant. That was their way of solving it. And that's how they got people back into the church. They said, oh, you don't have to really commit yourself to Christ. You can't be a part of communion. But, you know, we'll baptize your kids, and you can be a part of the potlucks. And so, of course, distinction. I don't know if you know, but as I mentioned several weeks ago, we have over 20,000 Protestant denominations in our world today. More than 20,000. Why? Why? Well, we don't believe in equality. You've got the Jews and the Gentiles. You've got the haves and the have-nots. You've got the firstborn and the secondborn. You've got the most favored ones and the least favored ones. You've got the spiritually mature and the spiritual midgets. You've got the old spiritually rich and the new spiritually rich. Just this week, I finished listening again to Animal Farm, and you have that famous line, all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. And that's how we believe in the church, too. All Christians are equal, but some are more equal than others. Who? Oh, we do it here, too. We, we say we have, uh, we have all kinds of distinctions we make, and generally we attach value to them. People who raise their hands in worship are better worshipers than those who don't. There's nothing, the Bible speaks about raising your hands in worship, and it doesn't command that you must. Both ways are right, but there's not a spiritual value judgment that you can attach to that. If you do, you will start to separate the body of Christ into the spiritual haves and the spiritual have-nots, the spiritual worshipers and the rum-dums that don't worship in the right way. And you will destroy the body of Christ which we've been doing massively for 2,000 years to the tune of 20,000 denominations. We don't believe in equality. In Christianity today, we love our castes, our classes, our tiers, our titles. We have clergy and laity. We have the spiritual Christians and the carnal Christians. We have the hand raisers and the hand folders. We have the spirit-filled and the spirit-less. The question I was asked most in my 26 years in Longmont as a pastor by people who came to the church for the first time, this is the most common question I was asked. Are you a spirit-filled church? That was the, the most common question I received. Now, that's like a slap in the face. What are they asking? <laughs> Don't you know? Do you speak in tongues? That's what they're asking. Now, the Bible speaks about that, and it's considered a lesser gift. But here, that has become now the standard by which we were judged, and churches are judged. And what happens when you do that? Boom! The church is divided. And all over our world, they're divided over and over again. We have reverence. If that's not enough, we've got right reverence. If that's not enough, we've got very right reverence. And we've got your holiness, and your eminence, and your beatitude. I once met the patriarch of the Armenian Orthodox Church in Jerusalem, and we had to address him as your beatitude. That was his title. And remember what Jesus said? You are not to call anyone... Rabbi, 
for you have one master and he is in heaven. Do not even be called teacher, for you have one teacher. Don't call anyone your father because you have one father and he is in heaven. The great watchword of the, the Reformation was the priesthood of all believers. I am no higher in any way spiritually than any of you, except I'm a little bit elevated right now. It's just a different gift, that's all. And I've never been in a church where the pastor's the most spiritual person in the body. It's usually some beloved older women who just pray their hearts out. Oh, those are the real ones you need more than any other. But you see, the mystery is this huge barrier between Jew and Gentile, God brought it down. And then that's not enough because once you bring the barriers down, people still immediately will start to think of some people are more spiritual than others. And they will not be on the same plane at all. Some years ago, one of our missionaries, who was a missionary in Russia, he had been there in Russia when, the, when communism fell. And he was part of the evangelical church in Russia. And he told us very tearfully, he said, now that the wall has fallen down and we're no longer communist, the churches have two tiers. These are the evangelical churches. Now they had divided all of their churches into two kinds of people inside the church. Those who had suffered under, under communism for being a Christian and those who had not. And now the church was like this. There are two tiers. Those who had suffered and those who had not, these have to be the leaders. These are the rumdums. And immediately your church is split. Another dear brother was in our church down in Longmont. He came from Romania. When he came back to the United States, he was divorced. And I asked him if you had been home to Romania. He said, oh, I can't ever go home. I said, why not? He said, I've been divorced. I can't be accepted in the church anymore. I said, why? He said, well, we're second-class Christians then. My. Many factors create castes among Christians today. Bible knowledge, gifts of the Holy Spirit, favored preachers like they did in Corinth. But the mystery is we are heirs together. We're in one body together. Now, there's more. Because now this mystery has some peculiarities to it that um, you kind of expect. Remember, any good mystery writer will include in their book some red herrings. And they will include some interesting twists and turns that you would not have expected. Because now we're a, a new humanity. And so now we're going to see some twists and turns. Here's what Paul says next. These are some peculiarities of the mystery. Here's how it goes. I, he's speaking of himself, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. That one, that's good. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. The Apostle Paul said, Can you believe it? God picked me 
to bring this mystery to the Gentiles. What a choice. He said, um, this is in 1 Corinthians 15. He said, I am the least of the apostles and don't even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Here's what he says in 1 Timothy. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. And by the way, do you know what Paul means in Latin? In Latin? Little. That's what it means. It means little. Paul says, hey, my very name. I'm, I'm little. And you can't find a worse apostle than me because I killed people. I killed Christians. But the, God chose me. What a weird, weird choice. You see, sometimes God chooses the most unlikely to people to be just the right one, to be the one that delivers the mystery. Who did God choose to bring the great covenant that covers the whole history of the world? Who did God choose to bring this great truth to humanity? A family of liars. Abraham is a liar. He struggles with deceit. Isaac is a liar. Jacob is a big fat liar. His very name means liar. And his kids are huge liars. They have a family sin of lying. Remember when Jesus meets Nathaniel? Remember his words? If you put it, it's actually kind of a joke. Jesus, behold, a son of Jacob in whom there is no Jacob. That's what he says to him. Behold, a son of the big fat liar who is not a liar. But God chose Abraham's family to bring the ones who brought us the covenant. God brought, chose a murderer to bring people, God's people, out of slavery. God chose a bunch of misfits to bring his people out of oppression during the time of Judges. God chose a sex addict, Samson, to be one of the heroes of faith. God chose an adulterer, a murderer, a liar to be called the man after God's own heart. God chose shepherds, unreliable shepherds, to be the first witnesses of, of Jesus' incarnation. God chose a homeless dude with bad clothes to be the forerunner of the Messiah. God chose women to be the first witnesses of the resurrection. God chose a criminal to be the first person into paradise. And God chose a Hebrew rabbi, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, who hated Christians, who killed them, to the Abia, the apostle, to bring the mystery to the Gentiles. Now those are some bad draft choices. <laughs> and they all became superstars. Why? It tells us because of God's grace. Paul, the least likely person of all, becomes the one that God chooses. I mean, that's a bad choice. Come on. But it's brilliant. Just like a good mystery. The least likely person that you would think, oh, they could never commit this crime, they're often the one who did it. And in God's mystery, the least likely person who you would ever think could love a Gentile and bring them in as equal members to the body of Christ is the very person God chose to bring that message to humanity. Well, all good mysteries have a point. They have some practical point. They have some kind of a, a lesson that they're trying to teach 
They have some fresh awareness they're trying to instill. They have implications. And so now this passage is going to end by the Apostle Paul telling us why God has delivered this mystery through him. Here's what he says. His intent, it's pretty simple. In other words, why did God do this? His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. According to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, um, that's his, his, his purpose. Now, it says the first purpose of God in, in making this mystery and in, in delivering this mystery to humanity is so that God could show his incredible wisdom to the, to the powers. What powers? Well, angelic beings, almost all people would agree, this is speaking to angelic beings, and angelic beings come in two very, very distant varieties. Good angelic beings called angels and bad angelic beings called Satan and demons. And maybe it's to both. Remember, um, Satan, uh, Satan thought that he had the whole thing won. When Jesus was crucified on the cross, Jesus' own disciple abandoned him and betrayed him. His disciples fled. Peter denied him. Satan must have gone, hey, we did it. And then out of the grave, he arose. And Jesus said, go tell his disciples, and Peter, I go ahead of him to Galilee. I want to talk to Peter. And he restores Peter. And he becomes one of the great, great leaders of the church. He is, Satan must have gone, rats! But, what then, knowing now he's been defeated at the cross and through the resurrection, what now will he spend most of his time doing? What is his greatest hatred church, the body of Jesus Christ. Now Jesus left this earth. He is the head. He left his body here on this earth. That's us, empowered by the Holy Spirit to carry on the work of Jesus Christ. And his major attack is us. And what has he been best at doing? Dividing us, 20,000 of, of denominations. That's what he's been great at. But we're together one body, so says the Apostle Paul. But there's another group of people who are, who are looking at the church, and they are learning uh, also, and that's the, the good angels. The text goes on, or what goes next here? I thought this was an interesting picture. Someone has, has written it, uh, that, that what God is doing is, is he is educating the angels. Listen to this. God is educating the angels by means of his church. Angels are created beings and they are not omniscient. In fact, Peter indicates that during the Old Testament period, the angels were curious about God's plan of salvation, then being worked out on earth. The Bible tells us that angels rejoice at the repentance of one lost sinner. And Paul suggests that angels watch the activities of the local church. And so... I know angels don't have wings, but I thought it's a cool picture. They're looking at us. And the manifold wisdom of God is being 
is educating the angels as we look at the church. So it goes on. In him, Jesus, and through faith in Jesus, we may approach God with freedom and with confidence. I ask you, therefore, do not be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are for your glory. Well, there are three implications. Did you see them? God's goal in this mystery that Paul now is proclaiming to people that Jews and Gentiles are together in one body, fellow heirs together. What is God up to? The first thing he's up to is he's educating the principalities and powers in the unseen realm. He's showing them who he is through us. Secondly, he, by this mystery, he is securing an open access to the Father for all people, Jews and Gentiles. And thirdly, he's giving us a different perspective on suffering. Because now Paul's in prison. He said, hey, don't feel bad about this, folks. God is up to something through my sufferings in prison. And Paul is soon to die. Here's a text of Scripture from the book of Hebrews, a marvelous text about what God is up to. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have the confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and a living way open for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Has it ever dawned on you that how we function together as a body of Christ is part of the education of the angels? <laughs> I bet we never thought about that before. There is a story told, and hope it's not true, but there were two men riding on a bus. There was uh, Bill and Joe. And they struck up a conversation, and they eventually realized that both of them were Christians. And so eventually Bill asked, are, are you a Christian? And, and Joe said, yes. And Bill exclaimed, oh, great, me too. And what kind of Christian are you, Orthodox, Catholic, or Protestant? And Joe replied, I'm a Protestant. And Bill said, hey, me too. And what kind of Protestant are you? Are you an Anglican, a Baptist, a Presbyterian, a Methodist, a Pentecostal? Joe replied, Pentecostal. Bill came, became even more excited. He said, me too. Are you an initial evidence or a third wave Pentecostal? Initial evidence, replied Joe. Me too, said Bill. What kind of initial evidence? Are you an AOG, a CRC, a COC, or a CCC? Initial evidence Pentecostal. AOG, replied Joe. Bill's enthusiasm peaked. Me too. Are you a premillennial, postmillennial, or amillennial? Initial evidence AOG Pentecostal. Joe replied, amillennial. <gasps> oh, I'm sorry. I'm afraid you're doomed. Those are all real. We have all those. And you see, if we don't have this little tiny niche of belief, we think that um, people are doomed. And we make spiritual judgments based on that. There, we Christians have a veritable af uh, alphabet of divisions. We're divided by age, 
We're divided by baptism. We're divided by Bible interpretation. We're by, divided by church growth. We're divided by denominations. We're divided by divorce. We're divided by ethnicity. We're divided by favorite Bible teachers. We're divided by food and drink. We're uh, divided by hand, what we do with our hands during worship. We're divided by the Holy Spirit, so we say. We're divided by music. We're divided by numbers. We're divided by personalities. We're divided by politics. We're divided by race. We're divided by school choice. We're divided by singleness and marriage. We're divided by spiritual gifts. We're divided by suffering. We're divided by theology. We're divided by titles. We're divided by traditions. We're divided by the volume of music we like. We're even divided by four little words. This is my body. That's divided the whole church for thousands of years. Not only are these divisions sad, but there's something far worse. To whatever side we find ourselves on these divisions, we tend to attach value judgments. And once we attach value judgments to things to which God does not attach value judgments, we have divided the church. That is not what we're here to do. You see, our God is not a God of division. He's a God of multiplication. We've got the wrong mathematical sign. And that's what we need to be about. This is the mystery. The mystery of the church is that we are one body. Oh, we take a lot of different forms and there's nothing wrong with the different forms until we start to say that some are better than others and we create a hierarchy. And once we do that, we will divide the body of Christ. May that not be said of First Baptist Church. Let's pray. Oh, thank you, Heavenly Father, for the Holy Spirit that works incessantly to bring us together. We are a divisive people. And far worse than that, Heavenly Father, we're, we're oftentimes um, motivated by egotism. We think we're better than others. That doesn't come from your Holy Spirit. That certainly doesn't come from your grace. Oh, Father, may you teach us as a church of people that it is by grace we have been saved through faith. It is your unmerited favor that we don't deserve. And may the humility that is derived from that understanding so embody, be embodied in this church that we become a beacon of God's grace in this wonderful town of Sheridan. To that end, we pray for your work in us and through us, in Jesus' name, amen. Please stand with me. I love to invite you as you leave today to come and talk if you'd like to. Um, I'd love to pray with you if you wish. And if you'd like to know more about Jesus, that'd be the greatest privilege of all. And now, may I invite you to leave this place as those who recognize that what we have in common is God's grace. We are the recipients of God's unmerited favor. And may we treat one another with the humility and the confidence that comes from God's grace. God bless you.